I mean, you feel like you're stepping into a war zone. You you feel like you're stepping into um, a situation of conflict, which indeed you are. So I have to ready myself before I take the garbage out, which is really an appalling situation. This is Cathy Etock. Cathy is a Gairi and Bajula woman and the chairperson of the Indigenous Peoples Organisation of Australia. It's a coalition of 250 organisations around the country who advocate for Indigenous rights. Cathy is also the daughter of the late Pat Etock, who was involved in one of the most infamous 18C cases in Australian history, Etock and Bolt. We covered this case in our second episode, so if you don't know it, go back and have a listen. Cathy's career in community advocacy spans more than 25 years, and she spoke with Just Words producer Jake Morecambe about her experience of everyday racism. Sadly, it's one that's really close to home. I live uh, close to the city, and it's a fairly built-up area, so there's a communal bin area, and there is a woman uh, within that area who has repeatedly called out racial slurs and abuse to me um, regarding uh, my fair skin colouring and my Aboriginality, you know. She, she calls out abuse about, about white Aboriginal and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's problematic because I, I need to use the bin area and I think I'm someone with a fair complexion. I'm someone who gets much less racial abuse than people with a with a darker complexion. Is this um, communal bin area where you kind of take your garbage mm. and you're doing that could be multiple times a week? Yes, that's correct. So you have to go there and you're anxious about the fact that this particular person might that's, say something. That, that, that's correct, yes. It's several times a week my... Well, I, my blood pressure would raise as as I take my garbage. Yes, it is something that impacts me there. It does raise, it raises tension, it raises my anxiety. So, yeah, my can thinking... Can other people hear her? The entire region can hear her. Um, yeah, so all of the neighbours in the vicinity can hear her. Um, but, but what sort of effect does it have on you, though? Well, it's it does intimidate. Um, my 85-year-old father uh, drove me home a few weeks ago and there was no parking towards the front. So I got quite anxious thinking that my father's going to be, as an 85-year-old, subjected to abuse and other... I think my father, taking my father around the rear, that kind of indicated to me the level of impact on myself because I felt more badly about putting my father through it than myself because I was getting used to having to steel myself against against those um, that likely abuse. But knowing that my elderly father would be subject to it um, was very distressing for me. How do you kind of deal with it? So I try and detach. I try not to get drawn into it because I think that's what she wants. And quietly I think to myself, you know, she's queen of the bin bay. <laughs> 
Just words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this the pressing issue of our time? You're listening to Just Words, a podcast about stories from 18C. That's the part of our Racial Discrimination Act that makes it illegal to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate somebody because of their race. Jake Morecambe is with me today. Today we're looking at an 18C case that involved two neighbours, a fence and nearly two and a half years of racial discrimination that could have brought a family to breaking point. The case is Campbell and Kirsten Felt. It's June 2005. An Aboriginal woman named Kay Campbell and her husband were transferred from their state housing in Wandawi, Western Australia, to another house in Wandawi, this time on a street called Wattle Crescent. Yeah, you've got to understand this is a small country town and the houses are like, it's open. Everything's open plan, really, if you can put it that way. So there's no high fences. It's not like we're living in the city. There's high fences. There's no such privacy. Everyone can see each other, basically. Everyone can hear each other. This is Golmina Majosevic. Golmina was a lawyer in the civil unit at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Western Australia. She was one of the first people Kay spoke to when it came to her 18C case. She was a lovely, gentle, small Aboriginal woman who was just trying to live her life in her little house with her husband and her son. Her, just her daily life was just miserable. Campbell's life was miserable because of one person, her new neighbour, Mr Mervyn Kirsten Felt. I mean, the type of abuse he was calling... In the court documents, it's written that Kirsten Felt would call Kane names. And no surprise, these were offensive words. Language warning. He was shouting across to her, niggers, coon, black mole, black bastards. What did Mr Kirsten Felt constantly say to her? I'm Australian, you, you all, all you niggers go back to the scrub where you belong. That's you know, was quoted in the case. So, you know, that's, you know, you hear that all the time. Go back to the bush, go back to where you belong. <laughs> It's these particular phrases as well that have a much darker intent. We were unable to locate Kay Campbell for the series, but we wanted to speak to someone who had experienced the impacts of racism. Sometimes it's an overt expression of racial hatred, like being yelled at by your neighbour simply because of who you are. And sometimes it's more subtle. Here's Cathy Etock again. Well, (laughs) you know, they're deeply damaging and... Uh, you know, you yourself can pick up on the absurdity of it, that Aboriginal people are the original inhabitants of Australia. Um, it's, it's, It's quite astounding because there is no place for people, for Aboriginal people to go back to. This is our country and indeed um, the wealth that he and other Australians have benefited, the entire mining industry has benefited from, has been taken from Aboriginal lands. And the fact that Aboriginal people continue to have the lowest socioeconomic indicators across all communities within Australia is just a reflection of the level of dispossession and inequity that has been enforced on Aboriginal people. This was the type of abuse Mrs Campbell and her family would endure every time they left the house. 
Every time she went outside, he would be hurling this abuse at her. Every time she watered her plants, he'd be hurling abuse at her. Every time the kid went to school, he'd be hurling abuse at him. Kids were playing cricket in the front yard. He'd abuse the, all the little kids. And... Mrs Campbell lived with her son and husband. Her son was only 11 years old at the time. It was affecting her health. It was affecting her husband's health. But it was her son that Mrs Campbell was really worried about. Did you ever meet Mrs Campbell's son or have anything to do with him? I only met him once. She was very protective of him. He was just a nice little young young boy, basically. But, you know, even in the court processes, we'd, we'd already noted that it had really affected his schooling and his, his confidence. Because they were kind of subject to this essentially on a daily basis. It started to affect his schooling and stuff. That's right, yeah. And she was worried he was going within himself. I mean, her husband was very sick, but he ended up passing away in um, mid-2008 in any event. So he wasn't a well man either. Um, At one point, both her and her husband um, had a lot of chest pains after one of his verbal, you know, abuses on them. This particular day, where both Mr and Mrs Campbell experienced a physical response to Mr Kirstenfeldt's abuse, was on Australia Day 2007. You've got normal family on Australia Day 2007. This is Tom McFarlane. Tom acted as Mrs Campbell's counsel when her 18C case finally got to court. In terms of setting the scene, you've got pretty standard-looking Australian house on, on large block. My client, Mrs Campbell's standing outside watering her garden. There's some, some of his mates, some of whom are um, Indigenous, some of whom aren't out the front yard playing cricket, pretty standard sort of Australia Day scene. Next door neighbour, Mr Kirstenville, comes out of the house and starts screaming all sorts of racial epithets at, at the family. What was this language? What was he saying to them? Oh, I mean, I'm not particularly comfortable repeating it, but it's um, calling people N-words and, and all sorts of horrible stuff about people going back to go back and live in the bushes and particularly nasty carry-on. Mrs Campbell's husband walks over to go and ask him to stop and and gets hit with a volley of abuse himself. Mrs Campbell's reaction to that, she was scared, she had chest pains, her heart started beating really hard. This incident on Australia Day was more than a year and a half after Mrs Campbell and her family moved to Waddle Crescent and was just one that had occurred over this time. But it was also the incident that sparked something in Mrs Campbell. Afterwards, she knew she had to do something to stop the abuse. Why did it have to get to this point before they took action against Kirstenfeld? Golmina continually said that Mrs Campbell had always been a private, quiet person. She's not a trouble person, let's put it that way. (laughs) She doesn't ask for help. She thought it would, you know, she really thought he, he would just stop eventually. So for her to um, even call the Aboriginal Legal Service for help, to actually seek help at that point, and when she did, was a real indication to me of how desperate she'd become. But maybe she wasn't sure what would happen once she took legal action against Kirsten Felt. She probably quite rightly thought that by bringing an 18C case against someone who was hurling racial abuse from their front porch, well it could make the situation even more hostile. Cathy Etok has felt the same way. When you're being screamed abuse at, it's not, they're quite clearly not open to a rational discussion. 
So, no, I don't engage her in any way whatsoever. That's why perhaps as well Mrs Campbell didn't want to do the same because by engaging with that, it might get worse. Well, the fact that somebody thinks that they can inflict their comments, that they're trying in making those comments, there's an intention to cause harm. There's an intention to cause harm. She, she had the added physical threat of, of a man, which in itself um, there's a, a, a power disparity there. So you wouldn't engage with somebody who's intending to cause harm. I mean, there's no point in, in doing that and it could cause you further harm. Okay, so we know Mrs Campbell and her family were being abused in their home purely for the fact that they were Aboriginal. But who was this guy dishing out the abuse? Why did he have such a grudge against Campbell and her family? In May of last year, Mr Kirsten Felt passed away, so unfortunately we weren't able to speak to him. But we did reach out to his family. My relation to him was that he was my brother-in-law, but current, but uh, from 1988, um, I divorced my, my husband. This is Heather. Heather was married to one of Mervyn Kirstenfeldt's brothers. And before she divorced her husband, she and Mervyn were on friendly terms. Yeah, no, we were friends. Yeah, yeah we were good friends. No, you know, it wasn't that we, we were in one another's places all the time. You know, he was a very hardworking guy. What was he like as a person? As a person, he had a gentle side, but he also had a... Oh, well, I've never seen him angry or anything like that. But in his later years, Heather says Mervyn became isolated from the rest of his family. I did send him Christmas cards, but over the last, you know, six years, 10 years. I haven't had any communication with him whatsoever. Right. I don't believe any of his brothers. He still has probably three, four brothers le- are still living. And I don't believe any of them have ever been over there to, to specifically see him. And I, the reason that I actually called you is because mm-hmm. there's a particular case that involved Mervyn that um, was something called Section 18C where a case was filed against him for racial discrimination. So you don't know or you weren't familiar with any of that? No, no, not at all. Does it surprise, Is it? does it come it, it as a does, shock to you? It does surprise me, you know. It, the only thing is, is that, you know, he could have been losing his marbles, you know, like he could have been... Uh, drinking more to, to end his death. I, 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 you know, there's all sorts of things that, that could be in, on his mind at that particular time. Right. You know, um, I don't understand alcoholics. Uh, that's what I do classify him as. I don't know if he ever had get, gotten off it, but in time I believe it, it, it caught up with him. Just to be clear, we don't know if Mr Kirstenfeld was drinking when this went down and we don't know what his mental state was like during this time. But I did ask Tom McFarlane, Mrs Campbell's counsel in court, to describe him to me. Tom has a pretty specific recollection. He was an elderly guy, would have been 
in his seventies, I think at the time, um, not necessarily completely with it all of the time mentally, um, uh, and also not not an easy person to interact with. Uh, the one thing I did pick up on when this guy was in court was he had an absolutely booming voice. So it, it, it's it's not as if they would have been the only people able to hear any of this. Like booming, you mean just like this loud, like... Really deep, um, loud voice. Like authoritative and... Yeah, and um, I'm tr- I think he was either Dutch or German. He had this very, very thick accent when he was um, when he was talking as well. This still doesn't explain why he had it in for Campbell. That's something I've had trouble piecing together too. But regardless, this was having a massive impact on Campbell and her family, and she needed it to stop. If, if you were in Mrs. Campbell's situation and you were trying to express to your child that this isn't okay, how would you go about doing that? If I had a child um, that was subject to that, it's, you're obliged to show them the processes to undertake to address such attacks. It, it must have been a very damaging situation for, for this woman. After the Australia Day incident, Kirsten Felt was issued a disorderly conduct fine of $600 by the WA police. Mrs Campbell was also granted a restraining order against her neighbour until March 2008. But that didn't stop him. Even with the disorderly conviction against him, he wouldn't stop. So when the abuse continued, despite the fine and the restraining order, Mrs Campbell looked at moving house. At some point in 2007, she'd put in a request for housing to move her house, but that takes a long time. We were in a housing crisis at the time. So she really had no choice but to stay in this house, and this is how she had to live her lives. And that's when she turned to 18C. Why 18C in the, f- the first place? Um, well, there really is no other provision. She could have, I mean, in WA, we could have gone through uh, criminal injuries compensation for the disorderly conduct, but that was only one incident. Um, And really, it's not, that wouldn't really help her. It wasn't a question of compensation. She wanted him to stop his behaviour, which you can get under this section. The first stage of an 18C claim is conciliation. So Campbell and Kirsten Felt would meet with a third party from the Human Rights Commission to try and resolve their dispute. But on the day of conciliation, Kirsten Felt never showed up. Tom McFarlane. He just flatly refused to engage in it, didn't respond to any um, contact from the commission or or from anyone. Why didn't he respond? Well, I presume because he didn't think that he'd done anything wrong and it wasn't an issue that he he wanted to engage with. Um, That seemed to be the attitude that he took into the, the hearing before the federal magistrate. After not rocking up to conciliation, the case automatically went to court. It was Thursday, the 25th of September, 2008. On the day of the hearing, Tom McFarlane was there representing Mrs Campbell as counsel, and Kirsten Felt was self-represented. Without a lawyer, he was going to have to defend himself on his own. 
But just like conciliation, Kirsten felt was a no-show. He didn't even show up to court. Well, he did, but he was late. So he turned up on the day of the hearing, probably halfway through the hearing. And when he got there... Basically just sat there and said nothing. Nothing at all? Yeah. Um, It was a little bit awkward when um, he had to obviously get in the witness box to say that he had nothing or that he hadn't done anything wrong and denying everything. He sort of would just grunt in response to most of it. He was basically making a fool of himself in front of the federal magistrate. The judge then asked if he wanted to examine any of the witnesses' statements, one from Campbell herself, one from Irene Nana Jackman, who was Campbell's auntie, and one from a police officer who was involved in the disorderly conduct claim against Kirsten Felt from Australia Day. But when offered the chance to plead his case, he said, uh, I think I'll give it a miss. Give it a miss? Yeah, and... I'm not up with this court business. Well, I can see how the formality of courts uh, it can be a little intimidating, but this response is, look, I'm going to have to call it odd. There's more. The judge wasn't handing down a judgment on this day, so to try and get in contact with Kirsten Felt to tell him what the ruling was, he asked him for a phone number. But then he responds, uh, I haven't got a landline. I haven't got a telephone. You haven't got a telephone at all? That's the judge. Yes. Have you got a mobile? No. It's not really clear if Kirsten Felt was simply not cooperating or if he genuinely didn't have a landline. But then out of the blue, something even stranger happens. I'll just apologise for the whole thing and what I did. Forget about it. I want to sit back, relax and retire. I just want it out of my hair. This is what Kirsten Felt was recorded as saying in the court transcript. Hang on a second. He wanted this 18 suitcase out of his hair, like dandruff, after years of hurling racial abuse at the Campbell family. Yeah, just like that. So he was apologising for something he initially claimed he didn't do, only to then turn around and say, oh yeah, wait, it definitely happened, I'll say sorry. Why was he doing this? That's something that had everyone puzzled. But my, my, my take on the guy was just, he was just a cantankerous old man that didn't really view anything that he'd been doing as being any particular problem or or being offensive or problematic for anyone. So Kay Campbell brought the case under 18C. It's gone to the courts because Kirsten Felt didn't show up to conciliation. She has witness statements backing up her claims of nearly two years of abuse. And to top it off, Kirsten Felt shows up to court and responds in basically grunts. This has got to be a clear win for Campbell, surely? In theory, yes. Campbell had the Aboriginal Legal Service behind her, a pro bono counsel that was Tom McFarlane, so it looks good for Mrs Campbell. But that's also because she's essentially unopposed. Kirsten Felt put up no fight. He built no defence. What are you saying? I'm saying what if he did have a defence? What if he had a counsel? Or what if he showed some slight interest? There's no doubt Kirsten Felt was insulting, offending, humiliating and intimidating Campbell and her family – But I wanted to know, was there any defence to Kirsten Felt's actions? So nearly 10 years after this case, I went and sought some legal counsel for Kirsten Felt. Imagine if I were Mr Kirsten Felt and I came to you and I had all this evidence against me saying, you know, I had done this, Mm -hmm. I I had said these words, and I asked, defend me. What would you say to me? So if you looked at a case like this and you said, well, first of all, 
would you say that the language used and the manner of communication was reasonably likely in all the circumstances to to have offended, insulted or humiliated the complainant because of her race? The answer is probably yes. This is Kate Eastman, Senior Counsel. She's a barrister with six St James Hall Chambers in Sydney. So you might sort of say, well, is it is it an act that was done in public? And you might want to argue that the communication didn't occur in a public place or not. In order for Section 18C to apply, the offensive, insulting, humiliating or intimidating incidents need to take place in public. 18C does not apply in private. So maybe George Brandis is actually right. Everyone does have the right to be a bigot, or in this case a racist, but only in private. Well, sadly, yes. So 18C will only apply if the act is done in public. And this is where the case of Campbell and Kirsten Felt becomes a little more blurry, as Kirsten Felt has been abusing Mrs Campbell from his home. So what is a private space and what is a public space? Generally, spaces such as shopping centres, for example, uh, movie theatres, the street, parks, or a tennis match, they have all been given as examples of public spaces. But then what about a university? Is that whole university a public space? What about certain tutorial rooms within that university? This is Elise Methven. Elise is a lecturer in criminal law at the University of Technology, Sydney. Under 18C, an act is taken not to be done in private if it causes words, sounds, images or writing to be communicated to the public, if that act is done in a public place or is done in the sight or hearing of people who are in a public place. So what this means is that discrimination becomes unlawful if it's found to be done in public? Yes, but the thing is, what is public and what is private isn't black and white doesn't really have a clear definition. So when I think of a public space, I might think of something quite different to what you think of. The idea that there is some easily discernible definition of a public space is highly contested. Uh, And you will see that in many of the offensive language cases that they grapple with this idea of what is a public and what is a private space and how do we determine the difference between between the two. Legally, the definition is based on whether or not the public use or have access to that space. So typically your home or your front yard is deemed private as it's not opened for all. But the lines become blurred in Campbell and Kirstenfeldt's case because of offence. Offence? Yeah. We're not talking about the white picket kind here, are we? No, it's the fence that separates the two properties. Let me lay this out for you. Campbell and Kirstenfeldt's houses are next to each other, side by side. They both have front verandas, front yards, and the only thing separating the two houses is this fence. A two and a half foot tall fence. That's less than a metre tall. On me, that'd come up just past my stomach. So imagine one of the countless scenarios of Campbell either sitting on her front veranda, walking out the front of the house, or Kirsten Felt sitting on his veranda. Every time Mrs Campbell leaves the house, she's exposed to Kirsten Felt. They can see each other, and given Kirsten Felt's booming voice we know about, we can assume she can definitely hear him. I feel like you're making a point here. Typically, you'd imagine your front yard or front veranda to be a private space, right? Given you're not inviting everyone in. Well, under 18C, that's not necessarily true. 
depending on how it's used, a veranda could be considered public. Here's Elise Methven again. The law would generally say that no, someone's veranda is their own private space because the public generally don't have access to that space. They don't have the right to use that space. However, this act became public once it was shouted across to another person's property or across outside this space. So there's this idea that once these noises or these sounds are transmitted across boundaries, then they can take on a public character. I can kind of see that. He's being loud enough to be heard from another private space. So it is crossing from his private space to hers. Surely there's got to be some public interaction there, just even theoretically? And if other members of the public are present, that adds weight to this idea that these words have taken on a public character. Tom McFarlane. This wasn't just him talking in the confines of his own home. It was him yelling out across a neighbour's fence or out into the street or, or whatever in circumstances where anyone walking along would have been able to hear it. So by calling out to Campbell in the way that he did, Kirsten Felt's veranda could indeed be considered public. Now, hang on, wasn't your thought experiment about developing a defence for Kirsten Felt? Doesn't this sort of just concrete the fact that he was not only morally wrong, the things he said were racist, but now we know that 18C definitely would have been applied due to the space being considered public? Yeah, although the law seems to work against him here, Kate Eastman Senior Counsel says Kirsten Felt could have had his 18C case dismissed if he had made those comments in private. If he was able to show that the communication, so his act was not a public act, it was done in private, then his, his case would be Section 18C doesn't apply to me at all because Section 18C only applies to acts that are done in public. Like, how would he have um, concreted that fact to be like, this doesn't apply to me, seeing, like, even if she had all this evidence against him, like, could he have possibly said the law doesn't apply? If he had evidence and he can't make it up, it's got to be evidence of the truth of what had happened in the past. But if he said, look, all of this occurred around my kitchen table and this was a a conversation between us, it wasn't done in a public place, it wasn't done in a community hall, I wasn't shouting this out to the public. If he had some persuasive evidence that showed where the communication occurred and its context, then he might be able to persuade a judge He might have said it was a private conversation rather than in a public place. So 18C only restricts racist speech if it's done in public. You can say whatever you like in private, and here 18C won't apply. This is weirdly and utterly maddening to me, this concept that Kirstenfeld could have really defended his behaviour under 18C if he had just said that the offensive comments he had made were private. So if the fence between the neighbours was a little higher, or if uh, Kirstenfeld didn't have such a booming voice, he could have gotten away with it by saying it wasn't communicated to the public, it was in fact a private space. Yeah, but all the evidence showed the acts had constituted a public space, and so Kirstenfeld had no defence in the end. So free speech reigns as long as your neighbours can't hear you, or you're in a private space. Weirdly enough, yes, but I guess it becomes this balancing act. 
It's like we've asked so often in this series, should my right to racially vilify someone be greater than someone else's right to be free from racial vilification? When you think about it, who is paying the cost for unrestricted free speech? Kathy Etock says freedom of speech isn't an ideal available to everyone. Freedom of speech, I think, is very selective. It's freedom for those who have capacity, those like Andrew Bolt, who, you know, has a huge readership. The people who were the victims of his um, denigration don't have access to to, to that freedom of speech. There was no capacity for them to respond on the same sort of level. You know, even within the discussions within Parliament, the Aboriginal Legal Service wasn't allowed to um, to provide its, its presentations. So that, that shows in itself that freedom of speech is freedom for a few. It's for those who have power or for those like this neighbour that I have to deal with that, that are unhinged and think that they can inflict it on, on other people. In this case, because of 18C Campbell 1, our courts made a ruling. It wasn't okay for Kirsten Felt to say these things. The insurmountable amount of evidence Mrs Campbell held against and in comparison to Kirsten Felt spoke for itself. She was allocated $10,000 in damages for the abuse she experienced and eventually moved out of the neighbourhood. The reason I'm I'm prepared I want to well, I'm prepared to speak about it is that you know really if ever was a, there was a case which showed the importance of Section 18 C I think it would be this case. It's not a big case. It's not hit the media and things like that. But it was a really imp- it really affected her life um, and her family's life. So this Section 18 C provided an answer for her that she was entitled to, you know, go about her life without being racially abused. And it also showed for her, it was showed her son that the law protected him, his friends and his family from this type of assault. So it's, you know, it's unusual. It's it's interesting mm. that it's it's unusual, but it's also not so unusual in that this is really kind of like an everyday case. That's right. That's that's. I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, a lot of Aboriginal people will had over the time said, you know, they get called these names. You get called these names on the buses. You get called these names on the trains. You get called these names all the time, all through your life. And most of them, you just you just have to keep putting up with it. Should, you know, Indigenous people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and other minorities tolerate, you know, racial abuse? There needs to be stronger statements by the government. There needs to be education campaigns by the government to, you know, educate them, particularly in relation to the history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, because racism thrives on ignorance. I'm your host, Nick Healy, and that was the last episode of Just Words. For now... 
we will be back to host one last episode, and this time it's, well, something a little bit different. It's a live show where you get to see us in the flesh, on stage, and we'll be putting 18C on trial. The event is sponsored by Audiocraft and 2SER, and it's going to take place on Thursday, May 18, at 107 Projects in Redfern. Thank you so much for being a part of our first major podcast series. If you like what you heard, and if you want 2SER to continue making audio feasts for your ears, become a 2SER supporter today, or donate at 2SER.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, because it's going to help other people find Just Words. Just Words created by Anthony Dockrell. This episode produced by Jake Morecambe. Our executive producer is Emma Lancaster. Miles Martignoni is our supervising producer, and he also did the sound design. Original theme music composed by Joe Koning. Research and assistance by Miles Herbert, Joe Koning, Taylor Fuller, and Shane Anderson. Marketing communication support by Andy Huang. Legal advice by Tim Senior and Bruce Burke from Banky, Haddock, and Fiora. Special thanks to all our podcast doctors and resident voiceover artist Roderick Chambers. Oversight for this series by 2SER station manager Melanie Withnall. This podcast was proudly made in the 2SER studios and we had a lot of fun doing it.